So turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 4 this morning. James 1, 2 through 4. We begin proper into the letter of James. And as you get there, what sparks joy? And for those of you who remember the cultural moment of some years ago, you will know that that is a question that is about a cleaning method. It is a method uh, that that says of the things that you have, you should pick it up and ask it the question, does this spark joy within me? And if it does, then it's worthy of keeping. If it doesn't, well, then you thank it for its service and you get rid of it. Uh, and by the way, the whole thanking it for its service, that derives from Japanese Shintoism, if you wanted to know where that comes from. Uh, but what sparks joy? Uh and that is probably an old cultural reference because we, you know, move quickly these days. But uh, when asking ourselves this question about the circumstances of our lives, we can probably find many things that sparks joy. Maybe we could think of friends or children or cheesecake. I can tell you one of those things really sparks joy for me. I'll let you think about that. Uh, but... There are also many things that wouldn't make our list, right? There are things that don't spark joy and we would happy to be rid of. We could think of cancer and war and murder. Uh, indeed, we can probably find many things that are natural to life and unnatural to life uh, that we would kind of put off to the side if we could. We would get rid of if we could. We would put away if we could. And yet, as we come to our passage today, James instructs us to count with joy all of the trials of life. And as we walk through our passage, we'll see why this should be and how the joy of trials is complete conformity to Christ. The joy of trials is complete conformity to Christ. So let us read our passage this morning out of the book of James. And this here is the word of the Lord. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so as we come to the book of James, James wastes no time into stepping into the issues that he wants to address. All right, the only greeting that we have of the book of James is verse 1, that's it. Uh, you know, typically we're used to probably Pauline letters, of which there are many in the New Testament, right, uh, that have kind of like this extended introduction, this extended welcome, thanksgivings, uh, prayers to God. And then finally he gets into the, the meat and potatoes, as it were, of his argument, of his reason for writing. Uh, but James doesn't do that. He gives us greetings and then goes right into it. And kind of the, the sole link that we have between uh, verse 1 and verse 2 is the word greetings and joy, which in the Greek are the same root word. And so that's kind of the only link, the only transition that we get. Uh, he doesn't really follow a strong um, uh, writing uh, tradition that we do in our day where we want to have transitions between each topic and kind of flow it through. Uh, but instead, we'll see time and again, he uses this transition of word. He'll take one word and use a similar word. And that's kind of the only the only uh, gift he gives us of saying, I'm moving topics, I'm changing topics. Uh, 
but I digress. Uh, James here, he's writing, and he's likely writing to a Jewish audience, uh, to the churches in and around Jerusalem. And he is writing uh, because these churches have trials ahead of them. And indeed, as we look through the history of the early church from, from the time this was written, uh, we know that they suffer under Roman oppression and that they suffer under uh, the hands, the hardships uh, of Jewish non-Christians who hate Christianity, who disdain the faith. Uh, there is also evidence uh, within the letter, and we'll get there in a little bit, but there seems to be evidence that uh, predominantly the people he is writing to are an impoverished people, a poor people. And so that comes with all kinds of uh, difficulties and trials there, uh, especially when you add into it famine uh, and, and the like. So we come to our passage today, and really what we come to is what will set us up for the rest of the book of James. This is an important theme that we'll see touched upon again and again throughout, and that is the issue of trials. And so that's what I want us to begin with as we look firstly to trials in verse 2, trials. And he says, Can it all join, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds? And first note here, again, he is speaking to the church. That's what that language, my brothers, means. Uh, or we could say my brothers and sisters. Uh, the Greek allows for both possibilities. So he's speaking to, um, he's speaking to Christians. This is a letter that is written to Christians. And what does he want to say at the outset to the church? Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So he's saying here, regard with an intense joy the trials that you meet in life. He's calling the church to consider that the difficulties that they enter into is something worthy of joyful consideration, not exasperation. And this word trial in the Greek is the same one for temptation. And we see, for instance, in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, uh, we see him use it in that way, the, the word temptation. Uh, so what are we to make of that? How, how should we understand this word here? It probably is better to understand it as a trial versus a temptation. Uh, temptations typically are something sinful that entices us to sin, right? Something uh, that is outside of us that wants to entice us to sin or allure us to sin. Um, and a trial is more uh, generally something that occurs that is difficult, so I think it's a little bit broader uh, meaning here. So we want to think of this as trials, not just temptations to sin. So it's just trials generally. What kind of trials does James have in mind? Various kinds, diverse kinds, all different sorts and types. He is not looking to encourage us in only one certain type of trial, he's looking to encourage us to have joy in all of the various kinds of trials that we will come across in life. One particular trial that I mentioned already that the, that the audience of this letter is undergoing would be poverty, being poor. Uh, we see that, for instance, hinted at in James 2.6. Uh, he says, but you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
And so he tells the church there, right? He says, the church is the, you guys are the ones being oppressed by the rich person. Why would you give them priority in the assembly? And he's dealing specifically with the issue of um, when someone of high social status comes into the assembly, they're given the best seat in the house. And the poor man is like, man, you go over in the corner there and you can stand over there if there's room or, or maybe you could sit outside and listen in. And so he's uh, dealing with that issue. Uh, but as he says that, right, it seems, this thing, it seems to mean that if the rich ones are the ones oppressing, that they're not the rich ones. So it's an, an inference there. Uh, but we can see that. Uh, we know in the early church, uh, especially in the area and around Jerusalem, they experienced famine. Uh, crops failed. And again, this is not like we have today. Uh, sometimes in parts of the world, crops fail and we have no experience of it other than maybe what we like to go buy at the grocery store is 50 cents or a dollar more than we're used to. Uh, we've kind of felt the sting of that a little bit as we've gone through COVID, right? Uh, we felt the prices creep up and uh, we, we feel that maybe a little more uh, uh, pressed upon us a little bit more these days. But at the same time, we go to the grocery store and we pretty much can get whatever we want. Um, and that comes from all over the world. So that's not the, that's not how it was back then, right? That's not how it was in the time of the early church. So when famine hit, it was a serious problem. And they had to deal with it. Um, but again, James doesn't limit here. He says trials of various kinds, not just trials of being poor. He says trials of various kinds. All kinds of trials the church is to look at with intense joy. Right? We could think of what are some trials well, we could think of relational trials. What happens when our best friend betrays us or forgets us or ignores us? What happens when enemies appear and begin to fight against us? And again, I'm not talking about enemies, you know, pulling out a sword and coming at us. Uh, if that does happen to you. I'd like to talk to you about it because that would be a pretty intense conversation. I think that'd be pretty interesting what situation you're in that this could happen. But right, maybe your enemy at work who is always trying to undermine you and is always uh, trying to belittle you before your superiors so that way he is elevated and, and you are put down. There are natural trials. What, what do we do when storms come upon us and destroy what we have? Destroy our house, flood our car. There are financial trials. Again, we, those are common, right? What, what do we do when the markets crash? What do we do when we lose our job? There are bodily trials. What happens when our bodies fail to rise? Right? What happens when they fail to heal? What happens when they fail to be well? What happens when our mind fails? What happens when cancer comes? What happens in the pains and the failures of the, our natural flesh? There are trials of various kinds. And what does James instruct us to do? Count it all joy. Every one of them, we should count as joy, and we'll get to the why in a little bit, but let's just think about what does this joy look like? 
So what is he talking about? This is an intensity of joy. Uh, he, If we go back, for instance, to 1 Thessalonians, we discussed at some length there, Paul's command in 1 Thessalonians 5.16 to rejoice always. If you go to the similar thing in Philippians, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. And if you wanted to clap there a little bit, you know the song, but there you go. You can have that ringing through your head for a little bit. This rejoicing that Paul calls us to, and that James calls us to here, is not, listen to what it is not, it is not ignoring our situation. When James says here to count it all joy, we shouldn't think that he means to count it only joy. Do you understand the distinction of what I'm saying here? James is not saying we somehow ignore the pain, ignore the hurt, ignore the sadness of trials. He is not saying, right, we have this shooting pain running through our body and we just kind of have this placid smile on our face and we pretend like nothing's wrong. He's not calling us to some kind of stoicism that ignores reality. Point in fact, consider this scene from the cross. Matthew 27, 45 to 50. Matthew 27, 45 to 50. And I'll tell you why I go here. It's because Jesus is the perfect, right? He's the perfect. He never sinned. How did Jesus count it all joy when he was on the cross? Matthew 27, starting at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Twice in that passage, we see this phrase, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. So I want us to consider here. Do you think this was a stoic cry? Do you think that there was no emotion or pain in this cry? Do you think he was just like, oh, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Like as if it was just another day. Ho-hum. Do you think it was reserved? No, it was it was a pain-filled cry. It was a mourning cry. It hurt. It was a loud cry. And yet consider too what we have in the book of Hebrews 12, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus counted it all joy when he met the trial of the cross. Doesn't mean he didn't experience the pain. Doesn't mean he didn't express uh, express the, the mourning and the hurt and the pain. 
Jesus endured the cross with joy because there was something deeper and stronger, greater, laying on the other side of it that he could see, that he knew of, that he was working for. And the reason for our joy in the midst of the trials of various kind of life is made clear in the following verse. But I really would would uh, implore you to sit with this reality. Think of it as a great joy when trials come. For these trials are testing. That's what I want us to see next. These trials are testing, testing in verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The trials of life are testing. They test and try our faith. And this testing produces something in us. Steadfastness or endurance. Patience is another way of thinking about this. But again, patience doesn't entirely capture the meaning of this word. Because patience tends to just mean that we accept or tolerate what is happening to us. And, and this word has much more the connotation of bearing under and moving forward. So we're bearing under a load, but we're moving forward. We're being opposed, but we're still going to continue the path that we're on. And God uses the trials of life to refine our faith. Now, that's what this word testing hints at. It, it is this idea of refining as you would refine gold or silver or other metals. You put it under the fire and the dross rises to the top and you scoop that off. You get rid of it. So testing, trials are this testing, this refining process in the life of a Christian by which the dross of sin and self are removed and the image of Christ is made manifest. The last sign of John Newton's hymn, I Ask the Lord, says it this way. And this is God speaking in this part. He says, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. Or Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved, by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Right, Peter there talks about the tested genuineness of faith that is revealed by trials. This is what trials do. And this is why we should count them as joy, because what trials produce in you, believer, is the image of Christ. Two things I want us to consider. First, the parable of the sower out of Matthew 13. The parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 18 through 23. This is what Jesus talks about uh, in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, starting at verse 18. And this is the explanation of the parable that Jesus gives his disciples. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, 
This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, then another sixty and in another thirty. Right? Think of through what, what Jesus is saying there. Jesus says the reception of the word happens in several ways. One is that it is immediately removed. The person hears it, it goes in one ear and out the other. And that's because Satan is at work to distract and to take it. He says, but there are also some who who receive it as though on rocky ground. And it grows for a little while. It seems to bear fruit. But trials come. And they quickly fall away. Persecution comes. And they quickly fall away. Things don't happen the way they expect it to. And so they fall away. There's those who uh, the word falls as though uh, in thorny ground. And as it grows, again, it takes root a little bit. It seems like it's going to really grow and produce fruit. And yet, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life come along and choke it out. The trials of good blessings come along and choke it out. And finally, there is the one in which the word takes root. It has room to grow and it grows and it produces fruit in varying measures. It grows and when trials come, it withstands the test. It makes it stronger. God uses these trials. God uses the things that happen, the circumstances that happen in our life to reveal our heart. What do the trials that you have been through reveal about your faith? Consider, secondly, Israel and the failings of the wilderness wanderings. And we could turn to Deuteronomy 8, uh, Deuteronomy 8, 2 through 5. And we find another example of God using testing to refine and to reveal the hearts of his people. And in the book of Deuteronomy, this is Moses recounting the law. Deuteronomy means second law, second telling of the law. Uh, And so Moses is retelling the law and he's telling it to the generation that is going into the promised land. Remember, there's a generation that got to the promised land failed to enter into it, and then wandered around for 40 years and died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. And now there's a generation about to enter into the promised land. And so what does Moses have to say to them? Uh, Deuteronomy 8, starting at verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And I'll just pause there and say, if you ever want to know where Jesus uh, got that scripture from when he was confronting the temptations in the wilderness, got it from Moses, although he gave it to Moses, so there you go. Uh, verse 4, your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. What does Moses say there to the people? All of the trials of the wilderness wanderings were for this purpose, to test you, to see what is in your heart. Now we have to ask a question, whose benefit is the test for? Uh, Because is God testing in order so God may know what is in their hearts? No, God knows what is in their hearts. So who is the testing for? The benefit of the Israelites. God is testing the Israelites so the Israelites might know what is in their own heart. And indeed, that's how we know, that's how we know what our faith is in when we are under trial. Uh, and if you've not really experienced a, a, a strong trial in your life yet, uh, you will find this to be the case. Because when you enter into trial, then is the truth revealed about what you trust in, who you trust in, and how great is your trust or not. Trials reveal our hearts. God led them. God tested them. He wants to know uh, what is in their heart. He tested them in hunger to see what the people of Israel would do. And what did the people of Israel do? They failed. Because they said, Moses, you just brought us out here to kill us in this wilderness. He tested them with blessings to see what they would do. He gave them manna. And what did the people of Israel do? They failed. Oh, how we long for the cucumbers and the melons of Egypt. Oh, don't you remember the days when we just had pots of meat sitting them? And now all we have is this manna, and who even knows what it is? They failed. They sinned against God time and time again. God revealed through their testing of their hearts that they did not trust in Him. They did not believe in Him. They did not see God as faithful. And what does the testing that you go through reveal of your own heart? How have you handled the various trials of life? I'm amazed at my own heart time and again, how when trials come, I find myself trusting in everything but God. I find in my heart no good thing except that which the Lord God himself has put there. I trust if you are in Christ, you find this to be true too. But lest you think otherwise, we shouldn't be satisfied with that. We shouldn't be satisfied that the only thing that testing reveals is that we don't trust God. That is not what we are called to. That is not what James is commanding us to. He is saying, count it all 
joy when you meet trials of various kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, endurance. You'll bear under it. Testing of our faith should produce patient endurance. We should bear under the heavy load of trials of life and continue to move forward in Christ. Would you describe your faith that way? Would you say that your faith, brothers and sisters in Christ, is one of faithfully plodding forward no matter the pace? Do trials produce in you a dogged determination to continue despite the difficult circumstances of life? Much of Christianity in our own day, in the churches, in our country, in the Christians that we see around us, in our community, are not this way. How many are those that when trials come, when difficulties come, when hardships come, when persecutions come, when calamities come, they do not say with Paul, I am content. God's grace is sufficient for me. 2 Corinthians 12. Rather they say, God, why me? God, I can't believe you would allow this to happen to me. God, you must not be there, or if you are there, you're not good. Because why would you let me enter into this trial of life? How foreign a concept it is. And understand, this is essentially true in our culture our culture would look at us and laugh if they said you're gonna you're gonna find joy in trial are you foolish the whole of our culture do you do you realize this the whole of the apparatus of our culture is designed to make us comfortable everything in life we are designed to seek after comfort in our culture if you don't believe that why is it that every one of you in your homes in your Apartments, wherever you may live, have furnace or air conditioning. Just saying. Because we want comfort. Why is it we have padded chairs and couches? Because we want to be comfortable. Do you not? So understand, the whole of the apparatus of our culture says, avoid the trials of life. And James says, press into them and count them joy. So understand, our culture finds this foolish, and it is sad to say that many churches and Christians believe the same thing, because they listen to the lies of our culture. Why should we count trials as joy? Because they produce in us a faith that endures. Testing produces steadfastness. And so let us see that lastly, steadfastness in verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What does bearing patiently under the load of trials produce in us? Perfection, completion, wanting nothing. We have joy in our trials because we know that in the end, Trials produce us fit for heaven. Trials make us fit for heaven. God is working, and in this we can rejoice. God is working 
all things together for our good and to conform us to the image of His Son. Trials make of us mature believers, and in this we find ourselves fit for the company of Christ. The joy of trials is complete conformity to Christ. You embrace trials because they are working in you the necessary virtue by which you will enjoy the kingdom to come. Let me say that again. You embrace trials because they are working in you the necessary virtue by which you will enjoy the kingdom to come. This is a remarkable perspective to adopt of the various kinds of difficulties that we will face in life. But this is the mature understanding of the scripture. God is not absent in our trials. He is not ignorant of them. He is, in fact, very much present in the midst of them. And he is using them to refine our faith so that we can be holy as he is holy. It doesn't negate the sadness. doesn't negate the pain. doesn't negate those other feelings that we may face in the midst of the trials. But understand that those feelings are not final. They're not ultimate. God is working in us. And they are what Paul describes as light and momentary. And that's from 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So James has in view this perfection of the Christian, which can only happen through the crucible of trials. We can only be refined when we're put under the fire. This is why we look upon all the circumstances of life as a Christian with joy. God is working in us something wonderful. Something which prepares us for eternity in his presence. The trials of life of the believer are not meaningless. And they are not from the hand of a mean God who hates us. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, what trials are set before you today? What is looming before you that is filling you with fear, anxiety, worry, concern? What difficult circumstances have you entered into or maybe just come from? These matters of life are joyous occasions which God uses to refine and perfect his people. He uses the evils that befall us even when we think there is nothing redeemable in our situation. What remains for us, the call to us, this morning who believe in Christ is this. Endure. Remain steadfast. Bear under. We are called to be steadfast and immovable, always trusting the trustworthy God. Always trusting in the faithful God who saved us and called us. We are called to bear the burdens of trial before us. And let me say here, we should not be as the Israelites are. 
Sometimes we are led out into the wilderness and we might remark as they did, God, you have brought me here to die. It's not so. He is always faithful. And at the end of the wilderness was the promised land. Right? Understand that that's the trajectory of the people of God in the wilderness, right? The wilderness was a temporary time until they got to the promised land that God had prepared for them. And so, too, much of this life is a wilderness by which we are brought through by God's hand, sometimes in difficult circumstances, sometimes in thirst and in hunger, that we may uh, enter into that promised land of heaven to come, fit and prepared, ready uh, to enter into that mansion that Christ has prepared for us. We are to endure and here's the grace of God in this. Church, this is where you come in. We are not called to bear the burdens of life alone. Galatians 6.2 tells us, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. God has given us, the church, each other, to help us endure in the midst of trials. And so let us avail ourselves of the help of one another. Let us help one another. Right? Do you, do you hear both of those commands there? Both of those, both of those realities for us? Both of those imperatives? The first is that we ought seek help from one another. And the second is that we ought give help to one another. It's easy to be proud and not ask for help. And it's easy to be selfish and not give help. We are called to neither of those. So let us stir one another up to love and to good works. Let us show love for one another in this. But what of those who do not believe in Christ? What about you who do not trust in Christ? God is working in these trials uh, even for you. But he is using the circumstances to get your attention. He is using them as a warning, as a taste of what is to come. He is giving you the smallest taste of what the divine punishment of your sins will be. The wages of your sin is death, and the trials of this life are a pale reflection of that judgment to come. You will long for annihilation in hell, and you will never find it. But these trials can be redeemed, and you can find joy in the midst of all that befalls you. But that is only through Jesus Christ. And so what remains for you is to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ Jesus as the Son of God, and He will save you. He will take the evils of this life and turn them into that which prepares you for the glories of heaven. You will find the joy of the eternal weight of glory to come. And so repent of your sins, turn from them, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ the author and perfecter of faith. Believe in the gospel. And then, when the trials of life come, remain steadfast, endure, count them as joy, because you know that the testing of your faith prepares you to be perfect. God is working something far better in your life, beloved God. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, you who are holy and righteous and good, you whose every way is good, 
Father, we come to you. And we confess that we do not always count the trials that we enter into as joy. Father, we do not always accord those things that you allow into our life, those things which you bring about as reasons for rejoicing. And that is because, Father, we fail to trust you as we ought. We fail to see you as the good God as we ought. We fail to understand that you are working those things to refine us and perfect us and to conform us to the image of Christ. Oh, Father, help us. And God, as we are in the midst of a trial now, as we are in a dark and difficult circumstance, Father, uh, preserve us. Father, work in us a spirit of steadfastness. Father, give us the grace to reach out to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and ask for help. And Father, may we, your church, be quick to give it. Oh, Father God, help us. And we pray, Lord God, that you would even use uh, trials as a mercy upon those who do not believe you to call them unto Christ. Oh, Father, would you send your Holy Spirit even now unto those who do not know you, that they would recognize their sins and repent of them. God, do that work which only you can do. And we, Father, uh, we pray to be faithful to that work which you have called us to. God, we thank you and we praise you for all of your grace and all of your goodness. In the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.